either. You know, that idea of the muse is something that I never gave any thought to, in large part because just the word muse always rubbed me the wrong way. It's always made me think of, you know, someone like who's writing romantic poetry, somebody who's like enraptured by somebody and expressing it in the worst possible way or a way that I just don't like. Because, I mean, I've never been a poetry guy. I have never been into poetry. I don't know that it, I don't even know that it's a, that I don't understand it. Cause I mean, I like lyrics and part of the reason I like lyrics is because the way they're delivered and the delivery of poetry on its own. Like they, it's like if you wanted to choose the worst possible way to phrase something and like the worst possible tone and rhythm to use. I'm sure there's poetry that does all kinds of things. Like one time I read a James Dickey poem that I really liked. He's the guy who wrote deliverance. He wrote some poem about the Wolverine, but I don't, I wouldn't even want to hear it again. Cause I like the idea that there's a poem out there. I liked, I had a friend who wrote some poems that I was, you know, tolerant of, and maybe I liked a little bit, but it was still a bit much for me. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with the delivery, the kind of persona that it takes on. And so when I hear muse, the word muse, it's always made me think of poetry. It's always made me think of romantic poetry. But I get the idea. I mean, because the idea is pretty interesting where you basically fall into somebody's orbit and you start making decisions and doing things almost in tribute to that person or as if they were watching you and you were seeking their acknowledgement. Like I think about the first crush that I can remember. I might've had some baby crush on somebody, but the first schoolboy crush I actually remember was a girl, Elizabeth. And in first grade, oh, here we go. First grade. I can't, this guy can't stop talking about first grade. Can't stop talking about first grade. It's going to be the name of my auto bio. My autobiah. I can't stop talking about first grade. No, really, there's something wrong with me, seriously. Uh, but this girl in first, I was in first grade. She was in second grade, but we had a split class. They would occasionally do that. They would have a split class, half from one grade, half from the other. And Elizabeth was a second grader, and I was a first grader, and she was a very pretty blonde girl. Hard to describe her, kind of. I don't know, you would immediately look at her and think, like, she's cute or good-looking, like, but not too much, like, not like a model, but she just, there was something that was very attractive about her, just naturally attractive, and I'm talking about an eight-year-old right now, but hey, I was a seven-year-old. To me, she was this mature, older woman, and she really was, like, and not in an over-the-top performative way, but there, there was one time where she wore a long skirt, and, you know, girls in, who were eight years old weren't wearing a lot of long skirts. And at some point during the day, they, they had us all sit on the floor to listen to storybook hour. And like I've said before, storybook, when they make you sit on the ground so they can read a storybook to you in a very slow, patronizing voice, it's a way of humbling and humiliating you. Sit on the floor. You're going to sit on the floor and listen to a, me read very slowly to you. If you're listening to this, anybody who still listens to this, you better be sitting on the floor right now, unless you're in a long skirt. 
Because Elizabeth wore a long skirt to class that day, and when they asked us to sit on the floor for storybook time, Elizabeth was like, can I sit in a chair because I'm in a, a, a skirt? And the teacher was like, yep. And I remember, like, I didn't stare at her. I mean, can a seven-year-old be a creep? I think they can, but I don't think I was being one. But she had that, it was sort of magnetic because, like, I was this little boy pre-puberty, but I remember just being distracted by her presence. And when she was sitting in this chair, like, there was not even a sexual thought in my mind. Like, oh, the second graders wearing a skirt, a skirt and sitting in a chair. Like, you know, if, if I had ended up developing some sort of slave master fetish, which I didn't, but if I ended up developing that, I would probably be sitting here in therapy, tracing it all back to like Elizabeth sat in a skirt in a chair and I had to sit on the floor by her knees like a, like a, a rat. I had to slither on the floor like a snake while Elizabeth sat in a chair. No, but, uh, it was just, it was such a pre-sexual sort of thing that I just remember being like, wow, she's really womanly. She's really mature. Like the fact that she even thought to ask to sit in a chair impressed me. The fact that like she was even womanly enough, not just to wear a skirt to school that day, but to, to be, to just nonchalantly as if she just knew ahead of time, as if she had thought of this, as if she had thought this through. Like when she decided to wear a skirt, it's like she knew that if, if the teacher was going to ask them to sit on the floor, she would have to sit in a chair. And she was just sitting there and you could tell she felt like a woman. But it wasn't over the top. But anyway, she was kind of my muse. You know, I hate to use that word, but she kind of was for that year because she was older and like, I didn't know her. You know, boys and girls didn't talk that much, but she was really cool. Like she was kind of tomboyish too, like very pretty and blonde, but very tomboyish. And uh, she, uh, she but, but anyway, she was obsessed with horses. So my first crush that I can ever remember, my first schoolboy crush, was a girl who, a horse girl. And she was the first horse girl I ever met. Like, she was one of those girls who everything she talked about was horses. And it made me want to like horses. Because she was my muse, as they say. I got to think of another term. I was in her orbit. I remember being like, oh, I, I better like horses too. I didn't go around pretending, but I did something very embarrassing. It's cute, but embarrassing. And my family at that time, early 90s, had just this very clunky, primitive computer. This is pre-internet. We couldn't even do any. It was black and white. The screen was totally black and white. But we did have a program called Kid Picks. And it was just this really basic, it was like a cross between like a kid's version of Photoshop and a game. Where it wasn't like you're actually going to do anything impressive, but you could draw things, you could stamp things, it had these special effects you could do that were all very primitive. But one of the special tools, what we call a special tool, was called the magic eraser. And so you would you would have like a white, you know, blank file open in kid pics. And you would just like draw the magic eraser on different parts of the white image, and it would start to reveal a preset image. Like it had a certain number of them that it generated randomly. One of them was a horse. And so you would just like, you would, it was like, a, it was like scratching away a hidden image. 
So you would like you would draw you would use the special eraser, and then the idea was to like erase the entire image so that it revealed the full picture. And it was made to look like a sketch. They made it look like a pencil sketch, and one of them was a horse. I think they probably had other animals, other scenes, but one of them was just like this very well sketched drawing of a horse. And just showing you how early this shit hits your blood, hits your hot blood. I thought to myself, oh, Elizabeth loves horses. I'm going to print this out and take it to school. And not like show it to her. Not be like, hey, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, here's your horse. My lady, here's your horse. I'm just your, your, your little humble squire. My lady, here's your horse. You know, it's like I had no intention of like handing it to her. What I did is I just stuck it on the corner of my desk and it was like an eight and a half by 11, you know, like a full sheet of printer paper. And I just stuck this image of a horse. And, you know, I think a part, because it was made to look hand drawn, I think there was a part of me that was almost hoping she would be like, Oh, did you draw that? And what am I, I don't know what I was going to say then, but I wanted her to see it and acknowledge me. And so I put this like freaking image I printed out of a horse on the corner of my desk all day. And sure enough, there was one point where she walked by it and she goes, Oh, a horse. Oh, a horse. She got really like excited for a second. Her voice got high and she was like, Ooh, a horse. And you know what? I played it cool. I acted like, yeah, this, I just, I just felt like bringing that in today. Oh, oh, you like that baby? I, I just, I thought about just bringing it in today. Cause I like it. No, I said nothing really. I think I was just like, yeah. But I did it entirely so I got what I wanted, which was her to come by. But what did I expect? Like her to stand there like chatting with me about horses? She would have found out I'm a horse poser really quick. She would have found out I, I know nothing about horses except you can ride them. I, I know nothing. And uh, so I, I just did that. And, you know, there was no I don't think there was any other interaction. Like she was my friend's neighbor. And I remember being really intrigued by that. But I, we never like hung out with her or anything, and she ended up going to a different school, I think. But yeah, it, it was just funny though, because like for that year, most of that year, it's like this girl was my muse, this pre-puberty muse, what we call a pre-puberty muse. Oh, who's your pre-puberty muse? Who's your pre-puberty muse? But uh, I think you, I think you could get into trouble talking that way. I think you could get into trouble saying things like that if somebody didn't know what you were talking about. Jesus, who's your pre-puberty muse? I'm talking about me when I was in pre-puberty. I'm not talking about pre the muse being in pre-puberty. Got to be very careful how you phrase things. But yeah, that sort of idea of the muse is something like, wow, that was early on. Where like I wanted her, like I almost thought for a second I even liked horses. And it shows you how early you start like trying to game the system. Because that's what I was trying to do. That's like a guy on a first date pretending to watch a TV show he doesn't like. You know, that's it's like any number of like the the pickup artist games that somebody might use, like pretending to to be into something or just lying. I mean, what that is, what I did, pretty close to lying. Harmless, it's cute. Oh, he wanted to get his first crush's attention when he was seven years old. So he printed out this silly image from Kid Picks and laid it on his desk all day so that Elizabeth 
and she sometimes went by Liz, which I love. <laughs> but uh, so that Liz would would see this image. Uh, pretty close to lying, though. As cute as it is, that's you know, I, I might as well have been on a first date just lying to a woman. But having that that person who, who things orbit around, and you can tell when a friend is going through that. Like if you've ever had a friend who like tells you they just met somebody they like and they might not be dating, but all of a sudden they start talking about all these hobbies and interests and things that they were never into. You can, it's, it, they probably have a new muse. I've known people to do that. I've probably done that myself. I mean, if you have a friend who's never been interested in horses and they're like, hey, have you ever thought about horses? Horses are really fucking cool, man. You, you know you can ride? Somebody's like acting like they just discovered horses out of nowhere and they've never been interested in, interested in, uh, in equestrian hobbies. You can be pretty sure they just like got a crush on somebody who's an equestrian. And uh, it's fun, you know, I think it's fun because there's something about like when we, when we have somebody like that, when we have a new muse, we want to like the things they like and not like the things they, do, they don't like. But we especially want to like the things they like. Like we see them as a great judge of things. Like if somebody has achieved that status with you, you're like, they have they're good at everything. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're uh, not good at everything. They have good taste in everything. I trust their judgment in things. Because you do that with heroes and idols and things too. Like when you have a hero or idol, which is no different than a muse, you know, it's all pretty much the same. Like anybody, any person that you are, you've put on a pedestal and you're orbiting, you know, you have a tendency to like look at the things they do and you're like, that's amazing. Oh, their taste in music, it's amazing. Like I had a friend who, a woman who out of the blue, like really got interested in shooting, shooting guns. And this is somebody who's very pro-gun control even. Her opinions are, are generally anti-gun, anti-gun, anti-gun. And I remember it came out of the blue. I was cool with it. I'm like, oh, cool. You're into guns. Like she was going shooting and doing all this stuff. And then I realized, oh, like she's. She just met a guy she really likes who's into shooting. And he makes it seem really cool. And I think shooting's cool. I don't do it, but, you know, I think shooting's awesome. I'd, I'd like to go. If it was convenient, I'd like, I'd love to go shooting. But, like, she started talking about this guy and was, like, talking about how he was into shooting. I was like, okay, yeah, he's your muse now. And, you know, it, it comes up creatively, and I've always been opposed to it. You know, I've always been opposed to the idea of, like, creative muses. I'm sure that idea, you know, I'm sure that's probably influenced me somewhere. But I've never sat there, like, thinking about a specific person. Maybe a little bit. Now, I got to say, there was there was a period. I got to backtrack here. I, I don't want to do any more lying. I was lying about being into horses so Liz would acknowledge me. But I don't want to lie here. There was a girlfriend I had years ago who was a very talented artist and had a very goofy sense of humor. She was very funny. And during that time, like kind of leading up to and like during our initial spell of romance, I started doing stuff like a lot goofier. Like I went through a, I was also drinking a lot and drawing while I drank, which I think played a role. Because when you're drunk, you know, as someone who drew my entire life and drew stoned and stuff, but like when I realized 
well into adulthood that I could drink and draw. And it wasn't about like doing it perfectly, but it was like, I can literally do whatever goofy bullshit I want. That was part of it. But also like this girl in my life, like, I, like she was very much that way. And I, I do think like I was kind of doing it in some way because I was in her orbit. I was like, I'm going to do really goofy shit for a while. Do goofy cartoons, all sorts of stuff. So I think I've had that. It's just been kind of rare. But, you know, a lot of people talk about like creative muses and it's not even necessarily that they're writing a poem or a song. Like I like a girl named Jane, so I'm writing a song named Jane. Like it's not always that direct, obviously. Like obviously, like if you're if you're in love with somebody, whether they're in your life or not, you can see where that can impact like just your aesthetics, your entire approach. Like they're you're kind of thinking of them, but not necessarily like doing things in reference to them. I can understand that. I don't think I've done it much in my life, but I can definitely understand that. But it's just interesting that it impacts everything, creative or not. And people also have these anti-muses, anti-muses. And that I think that inspires people just as much, if not more. You know, and kind of like the idea that like a muse is, is similar to like a hero or, you know, just somebody you admire. I mean, a muse could be a friend. I think a lot of times like when you admire a friend, it's different than a romantic muse, but you kind of, you think about how they perceive things and you, you trust their judgment. And I think in some of those, I think for example, like with certain friends, I can say like, if that person's into a certain style of music or a band, it makes me want to check it out. It, it makes it, it tells me that it's at least worth just a, a checkout. Not really the same as like orbiting somebody, but you do have people in your life that are like that, and I think your friends are that. And, but I think you develop like an anti-muse too. And in the same way that your muse is obviously like a hero or idol, that anti-muse is like the villain. It's like, it's, it's what the negative part of your story revolves around. And you can see some people like they, they go their entire lives with this negative muse, this anti-muse. It's, it's very common in romance, you know, just like, just like a muse itself is common in romance we kind of think of it as a romantic term. The anti-muse is often the same thing. Like somebody who's been through a bad breakup, they sometimes spend years or the rest of their life orbiting that person, blaming their problems on that person. I mean, I, I think about a, a buddy of mine runs a company and there was a woman who worked for him in the warehouse for years and she lived in her truck and anytime he would talk to her, she would just mutter, I can't believe what they did to me. I just can't believe what they did to me. That man and his mother. And she never explained it that I know of, but you can kind of piece that together. Like she was probably married to that man. There was probably something bad, like a bad divorce. There's obviously mental illness going on. She hated her mother-in-law. So like where she's at now, like her life being in shambles, it was probably like, yeah, like, like her ex-husband and his mom, whether real or imagined, like made her life hell. And now they're this sort of perpetual anti-muse where to her coworkers and her boss even, like just every day, if you talk to her, she'll mention them. 
And I've known people like that too on a, on a you know smaller scale where it's just they went through something bad and now they kind of orbit that forever. It could be a per- it could it doesn't even have to be a person, but you can see it with people where someone becomes the villain of their story, kind of this anti-muse. And they even make decisions to spite that person. Like I've had friends who will make decisions like long after someone's out of their life, but they're like, oh, Brad never let me do this, so I'm going to do this now. Oh, you know, the reason I uh, I dyed my hair purple uh, is because Brad told, told me I couldn't 10 years ago. Like people will do things to spite someone who's no longer in their life. Like they feel free or something, but like they're not free. They're still orbiting that person if they're doing things like that. And uh, th- those people, like they, they become this sort of anti-muse where you still orbit them. You make decisions in your life based on that person. And whereas like when someone's a new muse in your life, you make decisions informed by them, seeking their acknowledgement, their approval, or just a connection with them. Just a connection with them. And just a connection with them. But, uh, in, you know, with the anti-muse, it's like, it's all based on like disconnecting from them. Oh, if I do this or I say this, it shows I'm disconnected from that person. But really, it just shows how connected and, and how in orbit you still are. And it's good to have negative points of reference. I mean, that's the thing. You know, like it can be helpful to have a villain. But I mean, I see some like I, I watch these mafia YouTube shows where ex, ex-mafia members are on YouTube. I've read a lot of mafia books. And in a lot of mafia stories, when a guy cooperates or leaves the life, almost everyone has a natural villain. Like there's somebody who that guy knew in the mafia who was his antagonist. And they often blame all of their problems in the mafia on that person. And I mean, it's the mob. So like there's there's a lot of potential antagonism. There's a lot of potential rivalries and problems between people. It's built in. But I've noticed this phenomenon where mo- the vast majority of mafia members and associates, their story always revolves around one guy who made their life hell, and everything would have been fine if that guy hadn't been such an idiot or such an asshole. And that's, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, it's like someone who's still hung up on their ex-husband or their ex-girlfriend or whoever it is. I notice it with the mafia where it's like, oh yeah, this guy sees this one, he, he still orbits that guy. He doesn't just say, oh, the mafia was treacherous and bad. This one guy and I had problems. I decided to get out. It's always like everything would have been fine if it weren't for that darned dude. That darned dude. That's totally how these guys talk. But it just tells you something that people from any background kind of do that. But it can be good to have negative points of reference. Like having things that you don't want to be are good. Like being able to see things in life. I mean, it's part of our survival mechanism that you see certain people and you say, I don't want to be like that person. Unfortunately, in in kind of the inverse of, you know, with someone that you do admire, you say, oh, I admire that person. Therefore, I'm interested in everything they're into. I admire that person. Therefore, I want to like everything they like. We do that with our, we do the inverse with people we don't like. 
where we don't like somebody, we kind of see everything that they're into as tainted. And I'm very guilty of seeing things that way in my life. I rejected a lot of really useful, insightful ideas that to me now are just obvious facts of life, platitudes and things. Because I just looked at the people who were into that thing, who were probably just a small fraction of the people who into it. But I looked at that and I was like, oh, I don't like that person. Therefore, I don't like anything they like. Very easy to think that way. But if you can get away from that kind of thinking and you can just look at certain people and say, like, I don't want to be like them. What is it they do that I don't like? Because I'm not going to embody those things. But if you can stay outside of their orbit, if you can keep if you can keep yourself from like seeing that person as a villain, it becomes useful because it's good to have negative points of reference. It's good to it's good to not like things and to know you don't like them. Even if you don't have a rational reason, it's good to just be like, oh, I don't like that and I know I don't like it. And when you know that too, it's like it becomes easier to kind of wrap your ego around things too. Here we go. But I was thinking about like the way that people double down on the smallest things. And I have a friend who it seems like every time we talk, the guy, it, we're just like opposites where it's just like everything is, we just have differences about everything. And I still like the guy and everything. Um, I don't know why I'm getting into that even. I just, I just notice it. Just how these little battles tend to come up. And, you know, you know, so much of that is, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. I don't have any insight into that. I'm just, I'm just kind of pointing out that like, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess like it, it's so easy to double down on things irrationally when your ego is invested in it, when you care about being right versus being wrong. And we do that in our judgments of other people too, where like we don't want to be proven wrong about a person once we judge them. And like I'm somebody who, you know, once I know somebody it's actually very hard for them to make me not like them. It takes me a long time often to decide if I like somebody, but it's once I like somebody, it's, it's really difficult for me to not like them. Even if I don't talk to them regularly, even if they're not in my life anymore, like if, if they were to contact me, I would be more than happy to hear from them. Like you have to do something pretty bad for me to not like you once I've decided I like you. It just takes me a while to get there. And so like having these disagreements with a friend, nothing this guy says is going to make me not like him, but it just does make me aware that like, oh, you're, it seems like you're thinking in a way that's almost always the opposite of what I'm thinking. And therefore like almost every conversation is going to be a disagreement. And that's not going to change my opinion of this guy. It's just kind of something you're aware of. And when it comes to uh, like not like, like what, here's what I was going to say is if I've decided I like somebody, it takes a lot for me to, to not like them. 
And I'd have to really think about times where that's happened, where I've genuinely liked somebody. Plenty of people I've been unsure of, and I've sure enough, I've not, I don't like them. But when I've actually accepted that I like somebody, I don't think I've ever really backtracked on that much. Uh, but I have on the opposite end. Like I have like thought I disliked somebody and I find out that I like them. But it's really hard to admit that because like once you have placed that judgment on somebody, you look for things that they've done wrong. Like it happened to me. I noticed that I did it with a boss who who did deserve some scrutiny. He did deserve some criticism. But I realized at some point that like he had crossed the point of no return and I and I and other coworkers, when we would bitch and commiserate, I realized that we were all looking for things he was doing wrong too much. Like because we were all frustrated and because he did do some things wrong, we now started looking for every little thing he said or did wrong. And you shouldn't do that. It wasn't good for us. Like it was really bad for our morale. It just wasn't a good thing to do. And when you decide you don't like somebody, you start looking for evidence of it. When, when somebody has become, I mean, that guy, that boss, like he became kind of an anti-muse where like the currency in the office became talking shit about the boss. And I think that's very common. I think that's a lot of offices, but because the currency was that you're also, it's not just that you're looking for evidence to support your belief that that guy sucks. It's that now it's also a currency for you to pass along when you see your coworker in the hall, you can whisper like, oh, you wouldn't believe what he said today. You know, it becomes a currency and that fuels it as well. On top of the fact that you're now biased against the guy and you're building a case. We're all these, we are all these little lawyers building cases for and against things all the time without even knowing it. And, uh, Sometimes, though, like you should question, like when you look at somebody and you decide you didn't like them, reevaluate. Because I know that like some of my judgments, while I'll, you know, while I trust a lot of my basic judgment, my intuition, I do, sometimes I really don't like somebody because of the way their voice sounds or because of what their face looks like. I know that sounds funny, but it's, it's, I, I actually do that. There are people where I meet them and there's just something about their you know, physiognomy, there's something about the tone of their voice or their cadence that makes me say, I don't like them. Or at the very least, I don't want any, anything to do with them. And sometimes those people are what I thought they were. Or sometimes they're not. And I was just like, oh yeah, I, sometimes I got to be careful not to truly judge a book by its, judge a man by his face. Um, but yeah, like once somebody's already in, it's very difficult to reverse it, but I've tried to become more flexible with like, if I don't like somebody or I thought I didn't like them, revisit it. Cause part of it too, is like, I'm the kind of person who I, it's, it's not even the, I don't even put people in a position to betray my trust. Like I don't even put them in that position.
and I, I tend to judge people based on intuition, but I'm just I'm trying to at least give myself second opinions here or there. But sometimes, you know, someone's anti-muse is so broad and intense, like it's a composite. Like I, I was doing some reading again, like a, it's like a bi a biannual thing at this point. Like I'll just go down and I'll, I'll read some stuff about the Columbine shooting. Like I've said before, for me, it's kind of this weird trip. It's like a dark, it's like dark nostalgia or something where it's like I'm revisiting a very vivid time because Littleton, Colorado was, by appearances, was so much like the place I grew up, like the exact type of kids. You know, I was a few years younger than they were, but it, like when I look at documentation of Columbine, like when you hear about the kids and what they were into and what they were like, it was so close to the place I grew up. And that was when I was becoming a teenager. So it's so vivid for me. It, it, it really is like a time machine or a time capsule. But one thing, you know, with those guys is they very much had an anti-muse. They had phantoms. Because when you get into that way of thinking, like when, when you start to like get into, into a negative orbit, that's where the phantoms come in. You know, I've talked a lot about the phantoms on here, which is they're those voices that you hear in your subconscious that challenges you or you start to have these fantasies. It's when you're in the shower or, or when you're laying in bed. And uh, you start to have these arguments or these defensive fantasies with these phantoms where you think about like, oh, like I'm going to wear my blue dress tomorrow. And you know what? If Sandy comes up to me and she says anything about it, like I'm going to, I'm going to put her in her place. Like you're imagining sometimes a specific person, like sometimes you, that's where the anti-muse comes in. Like your anti-muse can often be your phantom that person you argue with in your head, that person who in your head tells you that's not how it happened. That's not the right opinion. You know, that person that you're imagining who argues with you, you know, it's, it's often your anti-muse. And sometimes it is a specific person. Like sometimes there is that friend, that classmate, that coworker, and you get into their orbit. You know, you start orbiting them mentally psychically and you just you start envisioning like what they would say for some people that's their parents you know I, I think about what my parents would think or say about certain things but I didn't grow up in a family where there was this strong you know like filial I don't know you didn't uh I don't know I don't know I, I can only speak for myself but it's like I don't hear my parents in my head like giving me counterpoint or arguing with me or or giving me pushback. I know that some people do. I worked with a woman who I really liked and got to know her a little bit and it was very clear that like everything even though she was old, you know, older, well into adulthood, like 40s, she still like everything and she was she had a great job like great relationship everything in her life was going well but like it came up a lot like where she would be like oh my mom would say this 
oh God, my mom is going to say this. Like she was constantly, her phantom was her mom. Her mom was her phantom. Where it was like she was always imagining, because her mom sounded like a bitch. Her mom, excuse me, her mom sounded like a witch. I always love when people say that, when they when they say like, they're obviously implying bitch, but they say witch. It was clear, like, and maybe her mom was a nice lady and stuff, but it was just, it was clear that she had done a psychological number on her daughter to the point where living her own life, her own happy, successful life, she still had the the presence of her mother phantom judging her actions. Like, oh, what would my mom say about this? I think that's true for a lot of people. I think parents have that lasting phantom impact, what we call a lasting phantom impact on their children. Could be anybody, though. And they're the person that you argue with. They become kind of your anti-muse. You're orbiting them, but in a way that's not constructive. In a way that doesn't inspire you, that kind of distracts and deflates you. But it can be a composite, too. Like, some people have a very specific phantom who enters their brain. That one friend, that one acquaintance that classmate, that coworker, that parent, whoever it is, they have a specific phantom. But for others, it's more of a composite. I think that's how it is for me, usually. Because I have my own phantoms. You know, I mean, they come out on this show. Like, a lot of the voices I do, not to do some behind-the-scenes shit, but, like, 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 sometimes when I say something, I'll hear it back to myself and be like, you fucking asshole. And I want to mock it. Like, like a phantom inside of me wants to mock what I just said. And, you know, a lot of people report this happening in the shower or before bed, which is interesting. Those are both situations where you're, you don't have anything else going on. Like in the shower, you're doing, you're, you're doing this automated washing of yourself. It's something you do all the time. You don't have to think. You just automatically reach for things and clean yourself. So your mind is free to wander. And it sometimes wanders into the vicinity of the phantoms, the vicinity of the phantoms. And it does that when you're laying in bed. Like if you can't sleep, for example, you'll just stir about something. You'll imagine. And these are self-defense fantasies often. They often involve defending yourself from some sort of slight. I mean, my brain does that when I'm walking down the street. Like I think, oh, if somebody came out from this trail and tried to jump me, I would put them in a headlock and throw them into traffic. Oh, if somebody came up and said this to me, it's what I've talked about before. These self-defense, these like preloaded self-defense fantasies. It goes along with people who almost like a, uh, like they have this sound bite. They're just ready to, to let out, which is like, just so you know, if you ever mess with my family, you're going to deal with me. They'll say things like that out of nowhere. Like they have this weird uh, hypervigilant attitude about people messing with them or messing with their family. It's very primitive. Just so you know, if you ever mess with my family or the, the Antifa slogan, fuck around and find out. Very similar. Because it, it, it's based on this premise that like somebody's fucking with you. Somebody's fucking with you. Somebody's fucking with you. Fucking with you. Somebody's fucking with you. Um, you know, it's this idea that like somebody is fucking around with you. So you need to tell them, hey, 
Just so you know, fuck around and find out. If you ever mess with my family, you're going to mess with me and that's I'm going to mess with you. You know, people who say those things, it's coming from that same place. Like people who say that shit are imagining phantoms. People who are into Antifa and say fuck around and find out, they're imagining these phantoms, these conservative, fascist, Republican, Nazi phantoms. I mean, politics is all phantoms. That's why it's so fucked up. Politics is all phantoms. It's basically jumping right into the shadow world and saying, not only am I going to argue with my own phantoms, but I'm going to argue with other people's phantoms. It's like being in a, in a house of mirrors. Nothing is as it really is. You're seeing reflections off reflect. You're seeing reflections of phantoms that are reflecting off of other mirrors that go all the way down a hallway. You don't even know where the phantom is. But yeah, we have those kind of self-defense fantasies, but sometimes it is a composite. In politics, it's always a composite. Like very rarely when somebody is like keyed up about when they're like alone in their house and they see something in the news that upsets them and they get online and like they post something really incendiary and provocative aimed at their political enemies. They might be imagining their Republican uncle as the audience, but I think oftentimes they're imagining like a composite of everybody who disagrees with them. And that composite has the worst possible opinions of them all. Those composites you make, it's like they, they bring the worst possible qualities to the table. And I do that. I think I do that more than I do specific people. Like my, with my own phantoms, they're a composite or something. And you know what's funny, like, I, I think I've mentioned this before, last time I did a good phantom talk on here, but Jim Gaffigan, who I think is really fucking funny, like, when I think about comedians that I've watched that actually make me truly laugh out loud, truly laugh out loud, I think about comedians that truly make me laugh out loud, I think of Jim Gaffigan. It's true, like, I, when I've watched that guy, it's been, it's been a long time, but I, I've sat there watching his very clean, wholesome, mainstream comedy specials. And like, he's funnier than, than a lot of alternative comics. It's just so basic. But one, one of his big things though, is he does like a phantom thing. I realized this, like I related to it where, uh, he constantly does this like offended woman voice. And I think he said it was based on his sister or something or an aunt. Someone asked him about it. And I think he did say He's, it's based on a relative of his. But that shows you that, that was his, that's his phantom. That's kind of his anti-muse. The fact that that's such a big part of his comedy. Like he'll say something and then he immediately does this like offended woman voice who's judging him or questioning him. And I, I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's my thing. Like that's what I do too, naturally. And that tells you, if, if that really is like his aunt or his sister, it tells you that like, that's a very specific phantom he's been hearing in his head his entire life. He's gone through life constantly imagining that his female relative is like second guessing or judging everything he's saying. 
And you know, doing that keeps you honest too. Because it's like sometimes the phantom is right. <laughs> you know, sometimes that phantom who's who you you think a thought or you did something and you imagine that voice, that phantom being like, oh, why'd you do that? You know, and you're it's kind of like, hey, you know, sometimes the phantom's right. You know, it's the angel or the devil on your shoulder too. Those are phantoms. I know people have even said that. Like people, I've heard people say like, oh, my whole life, like the angel on my shoulder telling me to do the right thing is my mom. The devil on my shoulder is like my cousin Brady, who's a, a convicted felon who, who's been encouraging me to like do bad things since we were kids. You know, just like, you know, your phantom can be that person who is you, you have a negative association with. Your phantom, too, can be a good person. It can be like somebody who's guiding you, you know, to, to make the right decision. But the composite aspect is really interesting to me. Just knowing that I do that, that I kind of make composites out of people. And I think about a type of person. I don't even know, I don't know if it's an archetype. You know, I think archetypes are always subject to revision. I think we can always kind of, maybe they're slightly different than we thought they were. I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't know where to go with that one. But uh, it sounded really good. <laughs> it sounded really good. I think that archetypes are subject to revision. What the fuck does that mean? What the fuck does that mean? My phantom comes in hard when I say things like that. You know, when the phantoms smell blood in the water. And this is how I'll go out. This is how I'll go out babbling about phantoms. But uh, now that's how it ended up with him. He just started talking about how he has these phantoms in his head. Now, we all got them. There are anti-muses. But your anti-muse can be a whole composite. And like why I brought up Columbine a second ago, I think that's what ended up happening with them. If you've read about them, you know, they were they were 100% controlled by the devil. By the devil. Uh, they were controlled by the devil for sure. But the, the, the reason they were controlled by the devil is because they started to orbit their negative points of reference. They started to get more meaning out of the things they hated than they did the things that were good. And they had a lot of good in their lives. You know, I'm not going to get into like why they may have done it or what might, what may have been chemically wrong with them. Cause you know, there certainly was something wrong with them, but it's like at some point they started to orbit their anti-muse. Oh, Columbine. We all, we're all asking these questions. Like why does a Columbine happen? Why does Columbine happen? What causes a Columbine? I'll tell you what, they started to orbit their anti-muse. Those boys in Colorado started to orbit their anti-muse, and that's how the devil got them. You know, but uh, that's kind of what they did, though, if you read their writings and everything. Because when I read about their lives, I'm like, their lives sound pretty fucking good. Even if there was bullying. Like, they worked in a pizzeria where they just goofed off. They would light fireworks in the alley. All their friends work with them. 
they were in that first wave of the internet. The internet was so fun. The internet was so cool at the time. Like just making a website was such an accomplishment and it was such a, you know, a frontier of new things and it was inspiring. There were no standards for how to use it. There was no, there was little conformity on the internet. You know, you could make your website, you know, major corporations had the goofiest websites, things like that. You could just, you know, so these kids, like they were on the frontier of something new. You know, they had a lot of positive things they could have orbited instead of what they did. And even if things were really shitty, even if they truly were bullied as bad as they were, you can see where they started to orbit the wrong thing. And... I think proof enough that they started to, like their anti-muse kind of became a composite. Like they were always envisioning this sort of person they wanted to kill, who they wanted revenge against. And they it, a lot of it was jocks. You know, there were these, apparently there were these older jocks when they were underclassmen who really humiliated people, including them. But those guys had graduated by the time they were seniors. And... When they shot up the school, attempted to blow up the school, but they, when they shot it up, they, you know, they, they made some statements about killing jocks. But when you look at who they killed, it's such a composite of kids. Like some of those little boys they killed, like they really look like little boys. They're like 14 or 15 years old. And they're really like cute, kind of like homely. Like, they're, like, like a couple of those kids, like, they're really uh, cute in a homely way. Like you can just see the drool and the snot and the braces and they're nerdy guys. And when you hear about them too, the stories are just like, oh yeah, he, he was a Christian who like really, his dad was his best friend and his favorite movie was Star Wars. Like if, if this animosity was, was really sparked by them being tormented themselves the fact that like they, not that they should have gone after anybody, but the fact that they ended up just settling for kids in the library. Oh, we hate jocks, but, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to commit most of our massacre in the library at lunch. The kids who go into the library at lunchtime are the nerdiest kids. And the girls they killed too. It's like they didn't kill like cheerleaders. They killed mostly just kind of like a, like a, like a broad selection of girls. And they had opportunities to go after more jocks. So even though it seems like a lot of their revenge fantasy was sparked by a certain type of person, their negative orbit got so chaotic and out of control that by April 20th, 1999, it was just all of these people represent what I hate. All of these people represent how tormented, tor tormented I've been. I deserve to stutter right now. And and the result is just you go after this very broad selection of kids. Because it's like you just see them as a composite. And if you've ever seen somebody who's like really deep, like, like in a truly paranoid state, like where it's, they're, they're truly delusional. And they start to think like everybody's against them because that me versus the world is a part of this. Like me versus the world, like the world has become your anti-muse. 
you know, the world has become like this collective phantom breathing down your neck. And that's, that's kind of where the me against the world attitude comes from. It's like this perception that like, oh, well, specific things have happened to me and there's specific people who have let me down or caused me trouble or there's certain people I don't like, it all starts to blur. And if somebody's having a truly paranoid delusion, they might think everybody in their life, friends, family, random strangers are in on it. And me against the world is exactly that. It's it's a very conspiracy-minded way of thinking that everybody is conspiring against you, that the universe is conspiring against you. And I think it starts with getting sucked into like these smaller negative orbits. Oh, like that one person tormented me. I hate them. Everything. Then it becomes like everybody like them. Then it becomes everybody around them. Then it just it, it spirals out from there, and you can see with Columbine, those guys, they really it really was to them them against the world. Like their plan was to bomb the school. They put all this work into their propane bombs, which would have killed hundreds of people. Like if their bombs had gone off, we'd be reading about Columbine, like Oklahoma City or something. They would have probably killed hundreds of people. Like their plan was to blow up the cafeteria which would have collapsed the library on top of it. It would have killed everybody there. Probably caused other structural damage and fires that could have killed more people. And then their plan was to stand outside and, and mow down anybody who ran out. So it's like the entire school became their tormentor. Even though most of the kids were probably awkward and... Uh, socially ostracized, a lot of them at least, and a lot of them were probably in the middle. And what's so interesting about it too is like the the kids who were apparently the ones responsible, because you know they'd been planning this for a year and a half or two years, and it started when they were being apparently bullied a lot by some of the jocks, some of the upperclassmen, but then it's like those guys were gone. They didn't hunt them down at their homes, like it was just like we're going to you know, we're just going to kill everybody else by proxy. But you can see where they got stuck in that negative orbit. And for some people, they that stays with like one person or thing. Like for someone, it might just be their ex-husband or their ex-wife. It might just be one person or one group of people might be Democrats or Republicans. But for some people, it really, it it escalates and it becomes the whole world. It becomes such a broad composite of people that you truly become a misanthrope hell-bent on destruction. And with the group thing, you know, saying like Democrats and Republicans, I mean, you can see where this way of thinking is... It's very tribal, where, you know, you can see where, like, a lot of people aren't, aren't making decisions. They're not coming to believe certain things because they necessarily have thought it through and think it's right. They know that Democrats don't like it, and if, if Democrats like it, I can't possibly like it. Or vice versa, obviously. 
where if you, if a Republican likes something or believes something, or if a substantial number of Republicans believe that, I can't possibly believe it because, you know, that's my antithesis. Republicans are my antithesis. Therefore, I couldn't ever agree with them. And that's fueled a lot of the more extreme beliefs on both sides. Like I said earlier, when you don't like somebody, you don't want to like anything they like. If you hate Republicans, you really don't want to like anything they like. But that sucks. You know, that really sucks. Because you're no longer allowing yourself to think things through. You're no longer to take you're no longer willing to take new things in. Cause like I said about me and people, like it's very easy for me to decide I don't like somebody. And I have to allow myself to like those people if I find out there's reason to. It's the same thing for beliefs. You might think you don't believe something because your enemy believes it too. But if you actually approach it you know, objectively, when you no longer think about that as your enemy's idea, when you think of it as just an idea that's out there, you might look at it and say, hey, you know what? There's something to that. You know, there there might be something to that. But it's hard to do that because your ego gets invested. Your sense of meaning, you know, gets challenged. If your meaning is based on your enemy, if your meaning is, is based on the fact that this type of person is my enemy and I can't have anything in common with my enemy, you know, you obscure like so much. And I think you can get around that like when you're when your phantoms are uh, when you sometimes you should li- when you should listen to your phantoms. Sometimes it's just your intuition. Or sometimes it's it's, a, it's you know another part of your brain saying, "Hey, you know, there's a different way of looking at this." Doesn't matter how you see it. And uh, one sec here. And you might appreciate it more, and you and it might not even stay with you. I mean, that came that happened to me recently. Like I was talking maybe in the last episode, comparing you know gender reassignment surgery to plastic surgery, just cosmetic facelifts, comparing it to tattoos. I think there's a comparison to be made between those things. They might not all be exactly the same, but they're all things that people do to modify themselves to be who they truly want to be. And people will have a hard time knowing who they want to be, so of course those things are subject to... I don't know, they're, they're worth thinking about critically. But I was thinking about that recently because like it came to me, like I had a thought the other night where I was like, it is kind of crazy that some of the same people who are really upset about gender reassignment don't bat an eye at circumcision. 
like people specifically who are really upset about children being allowed to have their breasts removed or to take hormone blockers. Very valid things to be concerned about. Like letting kids who we know are prone to confusion and poor judgment, like letting kids make life altering decisions. And I was, and I, you know, I've talked about that a lot. I don't mean to go into it again. But I was thinking about that a few nights ago, and, and I, it just came to me. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's interesting that people are flipping out about kids changing their gender. But some of those same people don't bat an eye at circumcision. And if you were to challenge them on it, they'd be like, well, the Bible says so. You know, or, you know, in Judaism, the Talmud says so. And all I can say is, okay. You know, I, I don't believe in challenging people's religion if it doesn't impact me. Like, if you want to circumcise your kids, I mean, your kid isn't consenting to that. You're cutting off a piece of your kid's penis for a reason that isn't practical. Like, people do come up with these practical arguments for it. Like, it's cleaner. It's less likely to get this. It's like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm uncircumcised. I'm, I don't like to, to talk about that all the time. I don't like to talk about my dicky all the time. But I can tell you, like, it's, it's never caused me that many issues. Like, or, I mean, any, really. Like, you do have an extra piece of skin down there. And it's subject to the same laws as any skin. But there's not really a... In, in the modern age, there's not really, like, a practical health reason why you would just circumcise your kid for no reason. But a lot of the people who believe in that would say, like, these other things aren't okay. Tattoos aren't okay. There's conservative people who don't think anybody should have tattoos, or they judge people for tattoos. But again, they think nothing of cutting off a piece of their kid's penis when he's born. So I was thinking about that, and I was like, like, like a phantom in my brain was like, are, are you hypocritical about this? Do you have the same views about gender reassignment as you do piercings, tattoos, any kind of body modification that's based on someone basically saying my soul needs this to feel whole? And I do feel the same way about all those things. They're things that you should be allowed to do under the right circumstances. You should also maybe wonder if that's what you really want. In the same way that I'm glad my mom didn't allow me to get a tattoo when I was 16, and I have no interest in having any tattoos, I'm glad I don't have to think about having a tattoo. You know, I think there, there's reasons why we don't let kids get tattoos, or we don't let kids get earrings without their parents' consent. And so I think it's valid to similarly question gender reassignment for even bigger reasons, because the impact is even greater. So I think my views are pretty consistent on that. But I did have a moment on a walk the other night where I was like, am I hypocritical for having the views I do on that? But my views aren't that nobody should be allowed to do it. My views aren't about stopping anybody from doing whatever they want to themselves. I mean, I, you know, my, my view is similar on suicide for that matter. Like criminalizing suicide attempts or something like that is the worst thing you could do. As difficult as it is, you know, 
I can't judge somebody for wanting to kill themselves. And if somebody truly wants to do that, I'm not in a position to tell them not to. If I love them and I talk to them, I would tell them not to. But it, I kind of see it as, as an extreme of all that. Like, I don't believe in telling anybody what they can do or not do. If it impacts me, well, that's different. Like, I don't believe in, in telling anybody what sort of substances to consume. But if it impacts me, well, that, that becomes my, I become part of that deal. I become part of that situation. But I have to say, sometimes it's good to listen to that phantom because I had a phantom the other night that gave me this, this, I just had this moment of like, well, you talk about this, but what, how is that different from these other things? And I actually had to think about it. I actually had to sit there and think, is that different than these other things? And do I put it in a different category from these other things? And the answer is really no. And I, I would like to see, I would love to see the, the circumcision thing addressed. I think conservatives ought to uh, address that. I think they ought to say, hey, you know, are we hypocritical on this point? And they would say religion. And I don't believe in challenging people's religions for the most part. But uh, what you have to understand is that, you know, progressivism is a religion too. And everybody knows that now. You know, that was a very clever thing to say five years ago. In 2016, it was very clever and cutting edge to say, like, progressivism is like a new religion. And we see where it creates its own religious views and practices, where it's, really, it's willing to obscure reality in favor of these larger faith-based beliefs. A lot of it's very faith-based. You know, a lot of a lot of what progressivism claims is verifiable is not verifiable. And it skews even raw data to fit its faith. And I think you can see some of these beliefs, like the idea that significant numbers of children need to change their gender because that's how their soul feels. And to make them wait or to deny them of that is a crime against them. It's a sin, a very serious one. A parent who doesn't indulge their children's exploration of, of gender fluidity is a, a, a severe sinner. There's people who call it child abuse. And to me, that's very religious. You know, there, there's this belief they have. And uh, to not act in accordance with that belief is a very severe sin. You can, it applies down the board. The way, the, the way progressivism treats basically all of its main beats, the way it handles all of its like central points right now, is with such a, an intense religious fervor that when you disagree with that, like you are a sinner. And while the language has changed, 
fascist, Nazi, hate. What they're saying is you're evil. You know, again, this was a very clever thing to point out five or six years ago. You ever notice the progressivism's a religion? But you do have to see it that way. Like, you do have to recognize that's what it is. And, you know, just like circumcision to a certain person is just a given. Like, why would you question that? Why would you question circumcision? It's right there in the Bible. Right there in the Bible. They really hammer home. They do. When I've read the Bible now, you know, I'm, almo I'm almost done with my second total read-through chapter a day. But, uh, you know, when I read the parts about circumcision, you know, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't, I can't go with that. I can't subscribe to that. But some people do. And they don't have a rational argument for it. They can come up with one. It's going to be rooted in faith. Just like some of these ideas that progressivism pushes. You know, it's rooted in a similar faith. Because, I mean, you can even see, here we are just into it, but, you know, you can even see where just like saying that a man who becomes a woman is just a regular old woman. That's a statement of faith. Like, you have to believe that or feel that. And when you ask somebody to believe that, you're asking them to have faith. The idea is that if you don't think that trans women are real women, they know why you feel that way, because they feel that way. They're not privy to any greater understanding than you are. They don't have access to anything. There's no piece of information that is going to change how you feel. If you're a straight male, there's no data in the world. There's no paper. There's no research. Nothing is going to convince you if you're a straight male that you are attracted to a man wearing women's clothing. It doesn't matter if you call that person a she. It doesn't matter like how seductive they are. You it doesn't even start. Like your brain doesn't even begin to think of them that way. Like I said, what's a woman? I know one when I see one. But if you are just a human being living your life, no data, no no insight, no intellectual insight is going to make you start being attracted to men who become women and seeing them the same way you see women. You just don't even do it. And someone could, could very well say, like, I'm a straight man. I'm a straight man. And I like, I like them. Well, you like them. You might be a little different. <laughs> you might have a little something else going on. But in order to say that and convince yourself of that, in order to say trans women are real women, in order to, be in order to believe that trans women are the same as any other woman, like that, that is a, a leap of faith. And you might actually convince yourself of it 
And maybe, maybe there is some realization that happens that I don't have access to. Maybe if you repeat that enough. I don't really want to find out. I don't really want to repeat that. I don't, that's not my mantra. Not my mantra. And you, you can see this with other issues as well. Where you can see like the interpretation of data and things. Like some of the beliefs, some of what I would call conspiracy theories, but are just as much statements or expressions of faith. Like one of those is the idea that, you know, black men are being killed by police officers in massive numbers. Unarmed black men are being killed by police officers in massive numbers. You have to believe that if you're a progressive. To actually go into the data and look at like, well, how many, you know, you, I, I'm not even going to get into the data. I'm just saying, like, you have to believe that basic premise. And that's a core part of the faith. And I think people believe that more than they believe something like trans women or real women. And that's in large part because of, you know, selective exposure. Selective exposure to the data. Uh you, you only hear the stories about specific types of people and specific sorts of interactions that happen between cops and black men. But that's a core part of the progressive faith is you have to believe that. And not only can you not believe, can, not only are you not allowed to not believe that, you're not allowed to take a nuanced approach. You know, because they had done a study where they asked Americans of all political persuasions, if you had to guess how many unarmed black guys are killed by police every year, and everybody overestimated it. I don't know the exact numbers. It's worth looking up if you're interested. But Democrats grossly, liberals grossly overestimated it. Like they, in their mind, like so, a, a, a slaughter is taking place. And it's fair to argue that anything is bad. It's a fair argument to say that any, amount, any unarmed person killed by the police, obviously it's worth looking into what exactly happened. And we know people aren't always honest about that. But uh, uh, what was interesting though is like liberals like grossly overestimated. They think that it's just going on constantly. But even Republicans, conservatives, overestimated it. Their number was more realistic, but it was still very high, if I remember right. It was still a lot more than are actually taking place, which is interesting. I mean, that's, that, that's a very interesting poll. Like, even if it's not truly representative of everybody in the entire country, the fact that even Republicans are under the impression that more unarmed black men are being killed by police than are, than actually are is very interesting data to me. But the, the difference is if you were to tell a conservative, oh, hey, the number of unarmed black men killed, your estimate is too high. Well, they would be fine with that. I think, I think most conservatives would be fine. They'd be like, oh, okay. 
But even if you told them that their number was too low or something, like if conservatives underestimated the number of black men killed by police officers and you told them, oh, you actually guessed way too low, I don't know that they would challenge the data. They might just brush it off. They might just ignore it. What's interesting about progressives, if, if you were to ask a progressive that same question and they, they gave you a grossly exaggerated number and you were to tell them the real number, they might actually be upset at you, think you're lying, or come up with some kind of spin. And a lot of people have run into this. This isn't, this isn't a phantom. This isn't me imagining some phantom out there. This comes up again and again when, the, when these exact topics get brought up. Because the faith requires them to believe that this is taking place at a far greater rate than it is. And again, if you want to make the argument that the rate that it's happening is too high, that's a valid argument. But you have to, it has to be an accurate, it has to be an argument based on accurate data. But the faith doesn't really allow that. There is this faith that certain things are simply the way it is. And nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing can shake that. Because in order to be part of that, you have to believe this. Like, you can't be a progressive in good standing in a progressive social circle. And when someone says, oh, 10,000 unarmed black men are killed a year, and you say, you know, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to use a lifeline. This might not be interesting, but I think, it, I think it is. I think I'm always interested in what people's perceptions of something are. Always interested in, in kind of how people perceive things. Um, I don't know. It's... Interesting, like it doesn't just come up. I typed it in. It's like a, you sh a number should just pop up, right? I typed in unarmed black men. Maybe I need to make it plural. So interesting. He's just going over the data. And uh, you, you, of course, have to go through these newspapers and everything. Um, I don't know. It, it's weird. Like, things aren't just popping up. But the number is significantly smaller. Um, it's interesting. Like, the first things that pop up, of course, are like NPR. I'd love just to see a nice data. So I'm going to pause it and come back to this. I don't like to do that, but I'm going to do it. Okay, I found what I was looking for. So this poll that was done across the political spectrum, how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2019? For very liberal people, 15% thought about 10. 30% thought about 100. 31% thought about 1,000. 14% thought about 10,000 and 
almost 8% thought more than 10,000. So the majority, 60% thinks between 100 and 1,000, with 31% thinking 1,000. Basically, well, we'll here a better way to put it would be 45. Over 50% think that it's between 1,000 and more than 10,000 of very liberal people. I'm not going to go through every single one. Um, just that was very liberal for just liberal basically like a less extreme version of that it's interesting like there's a very clear pattern to the way the bar graphs go there's a very clear pattern to the way the bar graphs go but for very conservative people 45 percent believed about 10 black men are killed by police unarmed black men 33 percent think about a hundred 13 percent think about a thousand almost three percent think 10,000 and 4% think more than 10,000. Well, the actual number of unarmed black men killed by police in 2019 was 12. So you can see that like 45% of conservatives guessed about that. Same with between conservative. The, the interesting thing too is the results for conservative and very conservative are very similar, except a higher number of very conservative people believe there were more than 10,000 unarmed black men killed. Very interesting. Interesting that very conservative people, a very small amount, thinks there were more. Um, but uh, point being, though, that it's like, you know, over 50% of very liberal people believe the number was between 1,000 and more than 10,000. And the number was 12. And the majority of conservatives also overestimated it. You know, most of it, most of those rested in, you know, between a hundred and a uh, thousand, but still that tells you something. The difference is, is that if you were to tell, if you were to talk to a progressive about how like a thousand to 10,000 unarmed black men are not killed a year, that wouldn't change their faith because their faith is informed by that sentiment. It's informed by that perception. And once you've reached that level of faith, you're not actually allowed to come back down. You're not allowed to come back down and say, oh, you're right, 12? And I think anybody, you know, saying 12 is too much even though you'd have to look at what exactly happened, whether somebody was trying to grab a gun from a cop or whatever, you know, you'd have to look at what actually happened. But I mean, you could make the argument 12 unarmed black men killed by police a year is too much. But then you, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor it because like you can get into how many white guys are killed by cops and it's about 50% or it, it's something, it's a high number. It's an equally high number. And you can say it's disproportionate and all that. You know, you, you can come up with all sorts of explanations. But what I'm trying to get at here is that there's a certain faith. And it doesn't matter how that corresponds to data and reality, because anything will support that faith. It's why when a Christian experiences the same thing that somebody else does, they might see it as a communication from God, whereas you don't. 
like I've talked about this a lot with synchronicity because I think synchronicity is fascinating because it it's something that feels almost divine in a very casual way. It's like a casual experience of the divinity and I'm showing my own faith. Not that that divinity is necessarily capital G God, but even long before I got comfortable with the term God, I've always felt like synchronicity was something magical. I've always felt like it was the universe winking at me. Even in a small way, a very small wink. Turns out the universe, as big as it is, it can also be very small. But, you know, the way that somebody perceives a synchronicity is a good example. Where if somebody's a Christian, a synchronicity to them is a little message from God. And I, I've known of Christians who believe that. Like there was a Christian girl I went to high school with, and I... One time over AOL Instant Messenger, of all places, like, I asked her a little bit about, like, I, I think I just asked something as bluntly as, like, why are you a Christian? And her explanation was like a dream her brother had. It, it was basically the same sort of stuff New Age people say about the universe. It was pretty much the same exact things that somebody of any faith would say. And I've heard Christians tell stories where it's like synchronicities occur, a synchronicity happens, and they're like, oh, it's God. That's a message from God. That's what their faith tells them. You know, for Buddhists, if you're, if you're a, a truly you know, austere Buddhist and you experience synchronicity, you say, ah, oh, it's, it's the illusion playing tricks on me. Ah, it's the illusion reminding me that it's there. It's a reminder that this is all illusory. If you're an atheist science fan, if you're part of the science fandom, you say, oh, well, it's just a matter of statistical probability. It's just the machine spitting out the same numbers a few times in a row. It's a matter of, math it's a matter of mathematical probability that the biological machine we live in called nature spits out the same thing in a row a few times. So everybody experiences, that's why I find synchronicity interesting, because everybody acknowledges having those experiences, but your faith informs how you interpret it. The same thing with what we come into contact with. You know, what you come into contact with is going to be interpreted by the faith you believe in. Data is the same way. And when you hear that 12 unarmed black men were killed, you know, while you, you might be hesitant to believe that, you might even think that that's a lie. Oh no, they're hiding the fact that, you know, the, the police actually kill far more than that and they under report it or something. You know, people come up with elaborate reasons why data is wrong. But even if you accept 12, the immediate argument, if you're progressive, is going to be like, well, I, I believe each single one of those was a mean, brute police officer just callously and, and, uh, you know, with full prejudice, just executing an innocent black man. Whereas if you're conservative, you know, you might see that number like 12, huh? Well, they probably deserved it. They were probably doing something wrong. 
And you know, neither of those attitudes are what I believe. I know the police kill people when they shouldn't. But uh, it's just your faith kind of provides these built-in defenses. And you can see with progressivism where it even goes as far as, you know, well, if you prove to me that, like, this guy did do something wrong, he tried to take the cop's gun, he, tried to do, he, he was trying to kill the cop, he was trying to steal the cop's police car, whatever it is. You know, at the very least, you can always fall back on, well, an environment created this. A racist and prejudiced environment created this. Basically forced him to do that. And then on the opposite end, a conservative would say, well, you know, he, he should have just gone to work. And again, you know, I think there's, I think you can think about it a little more three-dimensionally than that. Because it's not that progressives are wrong about everything. I think, that, I think that's the unfortunate thing about all this is progressives aren't wrong about everything. But the faith becomes blinding. You know, any faith becomes blinding. And I, I've, I've discovered this with, you know, conservative Christians that I know, where being somebody who has a certain faith, and when I know somebody is spiritual, sometimes it's cool to talk about that, even just in a, a very passing way. But I found that I realized, okay, their faith is different than mine, and we just can't talk about certain things in the same way. Like their faith is not pan-spiritual, as much as I hate to say that. Their their faith is not syncretic, like not even in the in the way that like they don't even want to acknowledge the comparisons that are to be made between different faiths. And I've realized, okay, you know, I, I can't necessarily connect with the average conservative Christian. Some of them have a very literal way of viewing things, and that very literal way of viewing things is their faith. But with the gender thing, you know, it, it's, it's very much a part of that as well. Where if you are of that faith, it seems like it's a given. Like someone who believes that children should have the right to change their gender behind their parents' backs even surgically, it's a given to them. There might be some who don't believe in it, who are going along with it, or they, they just enjoy upsetting people they don't like. But there's a lot where it's just kind of automatic to them now. And, you know, when you have that way of thinking, you know, when a lot of who you are is defined by the people you don't like, especially when it's a broad composite, when you're no longer even focused on like one specific person or type of person, when it's just kind of this broad composite, this enemy composite, you know, when that's what you're responding to all the time, you can no longer trust yourself because you're defining who you are based on what you think a person you don't trust actually thinks. 
and setting yourself in opposition to that. And while I think there's a, a function to kind of having an anti-muse or having negative points of reference, like things that you don't want to be, the type of person you don't want to be, the sort of life you don't want to live, I think those can be helpful if they're steering you toward something that is more true and beneficial to you. But when it becomes just about opposing this other type of person who you see as irredeemable, it quickly loses its value. And what people said about the Columbine guys, you know, what, what all the, the Matt Stones, Trey Parkers, and Marilyn Monsoon, stupid, but, uh, you know, what those guys said in Bowling for Columbine was just like, man, if somebody had just listened to them or told them it gets better, I think they probably knew that. They grew up in the same sort of environment I did. And I think Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold both knew the, those sorts of mantras. They just didn't believe them. I think they heard those platitudes. Based on when and where they grew up, I think it's very likely that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were exposed to tropes like gets better after high school. Oh, the nerds, you're going to be their bosses, dude. The nerds are going to be the bosses over the jocks when they grow up. All those tropes were driven into my head as a kid. A lot of TV shows and things were about that. A lot of movies and TV shows were about the little guy getting over on the big guy over time. Tortoise and the hare. You know, you might struggle now, but like you're going to be the one who wins in the end. It's why I kind of push back on like Marilyn Manson being like, I would have done what nobody would have done. I would have listened to them. Because I don't know if that would have helped. Not, and I don't say that to be nihilistic or say that some people are beyond hope. I'm just, after reading what they wrote and how cultured those kids were. You can say they're not cultured because they live in a small suburban town, but they lived in the Denver metropolitan area. They had the internet. They had access to so much media. They knew a lot. They were exposed to a lot. You know, it's not like they were kids in, in a backwoods town with no access to anything. They were exposed to a lot of different influences and things, and I think they probably knew. They, they, maybe they didn't feel it, but they at least heard that things will get better after high school. But it's like they had committed to their death mission, and there was really no turning back. And what's so phenomenal about their story is that they were as committed as they were like this wasn't something where they decided to buy guns a month earlier or even, you know, a couple months. This was something they decided to do together, as far as we can tell, like early 1998, like a year and a half before they carried out the shooting. So they decided to carry this thing out. They agreed upon it. They had some kind of conversation. I'm guessing, you know, we, nobody knows exactly how it happened. You know, one of them, I think it was Dylan Klebold, was writing in his journal as far back as 97 about like having kind of like a like going out in a blaze of glory. Like he had a fantasy of him and this girl he, he was in love with who, you know, they never actually dated, but he was in love with some girl and he, he wrote in his journal, she, she was his muse. 
And he wrote in his journal about how his fantasy was for them to be natural born killers and to go out in a blaze of glory. And at some point, though, he and his friend Eric Harris like made a decision together. I'm guessing it was probably a joke. I'm guessing they used to joke about, man, we got to kill those guys one of these days. Hey, man, just wait, we'll blow up the school. We'll blow up the school. I bet it started as kind of like a half serious joke. Like they were joking out of frustration and anger. And then one of them probably said, hey, you know what? Like, I would actually do that. And the other one was like, you know, would you? <laughs> I don't know. This is like becoming fan fiction. And then Eric looked Dylan in the eyes and uh, their eyes locked for a moment. You know, but it probably started as like a joke that they, they and they realized the other person was actually sincere about wanting to harm people. And what's so crazy about that, though, is once they made the decision that that's what they were going to do, they committed to it wholeheartedly. They appear to have kept it a total secret. Like, even though there were red flags, they still, like, kept their mission a total secret. You know, we'll never know if some of those close friends of theirs were tipped off. It doesn't seem like they were involved, though. Like maybe they would, in the same way they probably start, they probably came up with their plan by joking with each other. No doubt they would joke with their friends. Like I think I even read that. I think their friends were like, oh yeah, they would joke about like blowing up the school, but we didn't think they were serious. It's probably pretty close to the truth. You know, we'll never know if like one or two of those kids had an idea. But what gets me is just how committed and secretive they were. You know, these two kids who were just like floundering personally, like decided on a plan and worked meticulously, like building bombs, testing bombs, obtaining firearms, you know, trying them out, coming up with their outfits. And that's, that's always what gets me about it is that like once they committed to it, these two impulsive, you know, awkward teenagers, like they both committed wholeheartedly to this thing. It became their faith. And the way they talk about it is very faithful. Like they came up with code names for each other. They came up with, they started to call it NBK, meaning natural born killers. And they talk about like the, 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 the holy day of NBK. Like they talk about it in religious terms because it was the end of their world. You know, they, they saw it as the apocalypse. Like they were kickstarting their own personal apocalypse and they were going to die in it. And it's actually very, uh, they were jihadis. Like when I read it, I'm like, they're jihadis. The way they talked about what they were going to do is very similar to kind of, you know, how these jihadis hyped themselves up before a suicide mission. The difference is it was for their own little religion. Like those two guys built this little religion for uh, between each other. And you can see that the cult following is kind of based on that. Like these Columbiner girls who are obsessed with them, some of whom make pilgrimages to Columbine and, and do stupid things. Like there were those twins in, I think it was Australia, who were, they call them Columbiners. Girls, these, it's specifically women, which is interesting, but specifically women who have this just over-the-top obsession and preoccupation with Eric and Dylan and these two twins in Australia, they 
I believe they went to Columbine and one of them, I think, killed herself. I don't remember if she died, but like she at least attempted suicide. I think they may have made threats too, but it was it all revolved around like their pilgrimage to Columbine and, and one of them or both of them doing something insane. Something similar happened. I remember there was this girl, she had dark hair. I feel like I know her name for some reason because it was in the news a bunch at the time. But this girl, like she by herself went to Littleton and did something stupid. I don't remember if she killed herself. I think she did threaten the school, which is a whole other insane layer because there's a lot of these kids who do school shootings now and they're inspired by Eric and Dylan, but they attack their own school. They're like, I'm going to get revenge on my own school in the name of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. What's interesting is girls like these ones who go to Columbine and, and are like, I'm going to shoot up the same school again. I'm going to threaten the same school again. Like, think about how awful it would be if people who wanted to be school shooters, instead of typically targeting their own school or a shopping mall or something in close proximity, imagine if they all just went to Columbine and tried to shoot it up again. But people do make pilgrimages. I have a friend who did. Uh, once again, a woman, and I wouldn't call her a Columbiner at all. Like she listens to this sometimes. I'm not calling you a Columbiner, okay? I'm not going to say your name. I think it's actually interesting. I think your your perspective is interesting. Now, now I'm addressing somebody I know, but she went. I, I think it's important here that she went to Littleton. She did a road trip there because she had been reading a lot about Columbine. She'd been really internalizing it. Not a psycho. Not somebody who had any kind of like, she didn't think what they did was cool, but she just internalized it. It had some kind of impact on her. She's my age, was in school at the same time. And so it shows you there's like a spectrum of people where there's people who are like her, who are more grounded and they, they go there as sort of a pilgrimage just to kind of, to get a feeling. It's this mythologized place. It's like going to the ruins of a battlefield or something. It's like going to a, a, some sort of, I don't know, I think to some people it's exactly like that. Like I did a Civil War tour when I was a kid. We drove around to different battlefields. They told us about all of the young men who were dead in these ditches that we were looking at. They're like, oh yeah, these ditches, they were filled with dead young men in the hot summer sun. I don't think it's that different. You're like, here was a place of great tragedy. What does the air feel like? You know, people do that with true crime in general. Like I've seen where people online will go to, I mean, with the Delphi murders. I've seen where people go to that bridge. And these aren't psychos. These aren't people who are obsessed with the killer. They just go, be, I mean, I did that uh, when I was 13 my or 15 or something. I think I was 15. This girl that I went to school with, her older brother hanged himself in the woods. And... I didn't know him, but he was always around. He was like three years older, so we had been in the same school hallways in elementary school. He was well-known around town. He had a lot of friends. He was a very popular guy. For some reason, he decided to hang himself in the woods. My friend and I, one day, we met up at his house, and we decided we're going to go there. Stand By Me. The movie Stand By Me is about that. They meet up. We're like, we're going to find the dead kid. Not just to be helpful, it's like a, a pilgrimage to this scene of tragedy. 
it's this sort of, it's morbid, but it's like this spiritual morbidity, spiritual morbidity. And when my friend and I went to the, we, we wanted to find the exact tree. We had heard roughly where it was and we found it. There was, somebody had nailed a, a white cross to the tree. They had taken his necklace and put it around a branch. But we went there because we just kind of wanted to get a feel. And it was kind of a religious experience because we were sitting there and it was very difficult to wrap our brains around looking at that tree and imagining this guy that we kind of knew, like we, we knew him, not like we were friends with him, but he was our, we knew his sister very well. We used to see him around town all the time and trying to imagine that kid hanging from that tree. It was almost impossible to visualize because our idea of that thing is so mythologized. So actually being there and seeing the tree, it was spiritually morbid or morbidly spiritual. And I think that's what that, that Columbine stuff is. Cause I would never go out of my way to go there, but if I was in Denver or something, if I was spending a week in Denver, I might go. Just see what the air is like. This is a place that's been mythologized. It's been analyzed. We've seen it in these images. I completely understand why somebody would go there. And I remember a story about a girl who was a Columbiner who, who did her own. I think a, a lot of people have gone on pilgrimages there. And there was a girl, though, years ago. It was probably a decade ago. Because I do this periodically. I brush up on Columbine stuff periodically. I'll just read about it for a couple nights. I'll stay up late just reading about Columbine for some reason, like looking at pictures of just, even just, just like, not even pictures of anything wrong, just like the town. I don't know why. But this Columbiner went there wearing a trench coat and she, Eric Harris's house was up for sale. And so she pretended that she was interested in buying it so that she could tour it. And while she was there, she stole hand towels from the bathroom. Like she tucked a hand towel from the bathroom into her trench coat and like bragged about it online. And I remember at the time, this is like probably a decade ago that I was reading this. I was like, it's so interesting to me because those aren't even the same hand towels. Like his family was long gone. Like other people had lived in that house in the meantime. His family naturally moved due to the notoriety and stuff. They moved to a different house. But uh, the hand towels didn't even belong to the Harris family. You know, my mom was a real estate agent. And like, if there was an empty house, like she would bring towels and just hang them in the bathroom for people. But like to her, the fact that there was a hand towel just sitting there, like she wanted a piece of the house. And even though that particular piece had no connection to the Harris's, she still, she still took it. Like she would have been better off like, breaking a wood chip off the the wood paneling in the basement or something she would have been she would have been better off like stealing a rock from the garden but she just wanted something material to take she wanted a, it was this mecca for her and so in the same way that like you can tell eric harris and dylan klebold became religious about what they were doing they were jihadis in terms of you know their attitude like they they thought what they were doing had some purpose. Even if that purpose was just hell and destruction. 
they thought they had some purpose. And I don't think they would have been as disciplined as they were. I don't think they would have been as methodical and secretive. Like this was important to them. This wasn't two kids bragging about it and then, you know, this wasn't two kids like talking about doing it and then bragging about it or one of them like half-assing it. This was two kids who just fully committed to this insane plan. And so in the same way it was religious to them, they had a religious type of conviction for quote-unquote NBK. These Columbiners are religious about it as well. And, and I'll see posts from them online. When I do some Columbine, when I do some of my biannual Columbine reading, I'll see these posts on Columbine boards where g- typically girls are like, I'm an ex-Columbiner. I got, I got sucked in and like I related to them and... The weird thing about it for me too is I guess being a little older because a lot of these Columbiners, well, I think that there were some who are my age and stuff. A lot of them are a bit younger. Like some of them weren't even born when Columbine happened. Like you'll see postings online from girls who are obsessed with Dylan Klebold because they often have a favorite, which is funny. It's like a Backstreet Boy. Like when, when I was in school, a group of girls, they would each choose a different Backstreet Boy to obsess over. He would become their muse. It's like Dylan or Eric becomes a muse to these girls. And they see them as martyrs. They see them as having sacrificed themselves to some greater purpose. Like even if that's revenge or destruction, you know, protesting the world, they often choose a favorite. But like you'll see these postings from some who are like, I'm a former Columbiner. I was in a dark place. I related to them. Uh, I was bullied. Whatever it is, you know, something drew them in. And these guys become like amused to them. And you can tell like these girls, they might have woken up from the spell where they realize now that like, oh yeah, it's insane to idolize and worship school shooters. They might have woken up from that, but you can tell it had a lasting impact on them. And they're almost like religious fanatics who are coming out and saying, hey, I was part of a cult. That's what these posts look like. When I see these posts, it's like, it's very similar to someone saying like, hey, when I was a vulnerable teenager, I joined this radical cult that convinced me to hate my family and everybody who wasn't a part of it. And, uh, I don't know. I I mean, I guess like, I, I don't like, I think it's easy to denigrate those people but if I'm speaking candidly, I can see where you can get that way. Like, I've never had that need for revenge or hot-blooded destruction aimed at my peers. Like, I can tell you, like, I never once, like, even even being into dark stuff, being into metal, being interested in serial killers, I never once had the thought in school that I wanted to kill even one of my classmates. There were people I hated But I never had the thought, like I never went home and thought like, I hate Jimmy. I hate Jimmy. You know what? I I, want to just go into school and not even like hit him. I I never even thought about fighting the people I didn't like. My attitude was terrible, but I, I just, I don't relate to the revenge aspect. And I'm often critical of bullying, the way bullying is framed, but there is excessive bullying. And like what I know about Columbine 
is they were tormented by some older guys. There were some older bullies who tormented them. I think I mentioned it an hour ago, but, and uh, I think that had a, a severe impact on them. But the thing that I always think about with with Columbine is like how mainstream they actually were. Like they were certainly not the most unique people in their school. They didn't have deep underground interests. Like the things they were into were very mainstream. They were dark mainstream, but they were very mainstream. Like they listened to Ramstein and thought like, I'm angry. They... They watched, like, if you look at the movies they were into, it's just action movies. Like, they weren't into obscure horror movies. They were into just the, the most, the biggest, most famous and popular action movies. They just liked movies where shit gets blown up and people shoot guns, like every other American boy. And when you look at the music, like, all the all of the music they were into was just like, it was just completely... You could go into any CD store, you could go into any mall Sam Goody and find what they were into. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just interesting that they weren't, they didn't have niche taste in things. Like they were just into like industrial rock, like mainstream, like gothy, dark industrial rock, aggressive music. And they were into like action movies and Doom, like the most popular video game. And it's always funny because there's a a picture of them. It's their class picture. And my schools always did this too. It's funny how this is just kind of like a a ritual that every school across the country does. But they take a picture of all the seniors sitting in the bleachers. And they have you take one serious photo and a goofy photo. They did that for us too. They were like, we're going to have you take a goofy photo and a serious photo. And so they, they did that at Columbine. And I love looking at that picture because you see all the students from their class. You know, I don't know if there's a hundred students, but there's a lot of students sitting in these bleachers and you can really see the different types of kids. And I guess I relate to that because I know those exact crowds, but you can also see like where the trends were changing. Like because Columbine was in 1999 and I graduated high school in 2004, it's interesting to see like, while everybody's almost the same. Like you can, you can see a couple wiggers, you can see the stoners, you can see the alternative kids, you can see the jocks. Their fashion is very close to the fashion when I was in school, but you can see the little subtle changes. And a funny one is, uh, the way people wear their backpacks. Like there's some surveillance footage of Columbine, like of the cafeteria, like moments before the shooting and then during the shooting. And it's interesting because a lot of kids are walking with one with one uh, strap on. Like they have one backpack strap over one shoulder and they're holding it. And that was very 90s. For some reason, kids thought it was cool to have your backpack over just one arm. And you see kids walking around like that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I did that in 1999 too. But by 2000 and 2001, it was uncool. Like somebody gave me shit for doing that like in 2000. Like I wore my backpack over one arm just slung over a shoulder. And I remember someone being like, why don't you wear both straps? And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. But we all got it into our head in the 90s. So like they stopped doing that for some reason when I was in high school. But in Columbine, you see that like everybody's still doing the one strap deal. 
but also just with their fashion you can kind of see like the way the jocks are dressed changed a little bit but with this uh with this class picture of everybody doing like serious poses and goofy poses you know it's a well-known picture because the shooters are up in the corner and in the goofy photo they're aiming guns at the camera them and their friends there's a group of like four or five kids up in the corner but you notice like eric and dylan they're aiming their guns with conviction they have their sunglasses on and like they're obviously foreshadowing they deliberately did some foreshadowing and stuff like this is a couple months before the shooting their plan was almost had almost come to fruition they 100 percent posed shooting the camera because they knew that somebody was going to look at that later and it was going to be fucking eerie and it is it's really eerie to think that those same kids who are just aiming their gun their, their fake invisible guns at the camera would be doing that exact thing to the very people in that room two months later or whatever it is and their friends you can tell like they don't look serious about it their friends are just kind of like haphazardly aiming their fingers and you can tell that those aren't the kids who are going to shoot people the kids who are going to shoot people look like they're fucking ready to do it right there and then but like i was saying about like eric and dylan they were very they were dark and alternative but they were mainstream alternative like everything they were into you could go into the local hot topic and find it all like you could be eric and dylan if you went into hot topic in 1999 and just bought what was there but there's a guy sitting a few rows in front of them who's obviously not with them this is the class picture of everybody from their from the senior class and there's a guy seated you know a few seats down from them and he's in a neurosis shirt and it's funny when you look at stuff like this because like i look at a photo like this and i think like where would i belong and when i saw the guy in the neurosis shirt like i'm not a neurosis fan but it's like that's clearly a guy who was into stuff the guy in littleton colorado in high school in 1999 who wore a neurosis shirt to school like he's at least kind of on he's into kind of lesser known stuff especially 99 like that's a guy who's probably checking out new underground music he's probably been introduced to you know just stuff that's not obvious like neurosis is a big band they were a hardcore band that like started playing like slow music kind of their own thing like i said i'm not a neurosis guy but when i saw that like a guy in a neurosis shirt i was like oh i'd probably be hanging out with those guys that'd probably be me i wouldn't be friends with eric and dylan those weren't my kind of people at all I would probably be hanging out with the guy in the neurosis shirt. You can quote me on that. I'd probably be hanging out with the guy in the neurosis shirt. But that just stood out to me because I was like, there's a guy who like, he's not one of their friends. He's into alternative stuff. He's probably into like punk and hardcore and metal or something. And it's just interesting like that contrast though because i've made I, i've made this point before on one of the billion times i've talked about columbine but with these school shooters you don't usually see them invested in any kind of niche interest like they they would literally be happy with just like a, a 3d generated image of a skull like the sort of art they're into has no <laughs> no value you know it's like it's uh <laughs> it's like they're literally into like the most surface level like they're the type of guys who like go into a store and they're like oh dude a punisher shirt 
Oh, dude, it's a Punisher shirt. That's fucking me, man. Oh, dude, this is something like trying to convey negativity in the most superficial, hot-blooded way. That's me, man. It's almost like biker art, except not cool. Because bikers are like that, too. Like how bikers, like, like motorcycle gangs and stuff, they're like, dude, we're going to have like a demon skull with wings and fire. Which to anybody else, it's like that's the most like generic, stupid imagery. But somehow when bikers do it, it's like outsider art. It really is. It's like why prison tattoos look so cool. But like what these school shooters are always into, it's like cookie cutter negativity. It's like what hot topics selling you. Very rarely, if ever, do you find out that these kids were like investigating underground music they were investigating independent music they they were in they were they were checking out weird dark existential art not that that makes anybody cooler i'm just saying it's interesting that like they don't seem to have found a niche and i, I don't think that's a coincidence i don't think it's a coincidence that there's a different type of kid who's into dark stuff who's alternative who's excited about life because he has like these new interests to dig into and hunt for it's the same reason like miles and i have had this joke for 15 years how it's like you're more likely to get killed at a pantera concert than a black metal show like even though black metal has this mythologized reputation for violence the reality is it's like most people at a black metal show are really into music you know, they're really into like this, this niche. I mean, everybody knows what black metal is today, but it's, it's still kind of this niche subject and you, you care about like this demo and like you, you have taste, you, not that everybody has taste or they have good taste, but still it's like, it requires some investment. It requires some digging. You, be, you, you get, it's a distraction from shit, you know, it's, it's like, you have it's it's an interest like it actually takes investment and yeah well there are exceptions to that but it's like you go to a pantera or even a new metal show because pantera is cool but still like you go to a pantera show like they were one of the biggest most popular metal bands of their era you're gonna go and you're gonna be around like ex-cons and like fucked up kids I mean, a fuck, like a fucking random psychotic fan killed Dimebag Daryl. Killed Dimebag Daryl. Even Pantera, even Dimebag Daryl wasn't uh, protected at, at his shows, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's true, though. Like, like going to a new metal show, for that matter. I bet that the average new metal show back when it was popular was way more dangerous than any death metal show any uh certainly any black metal show anything niche because it because it tracks more of that like hot-blooded dunderheaded you know normal person with dark interests but those people can be the scariest of all because it takes like very little investment to be into that shit and I remember when uh, the Virginia Tech guy killed somebody. I've, I've talked about this before, but when the Virginia Tech guy killed 33 people, I think it was, he just listened to Collective Soul on repeat. 
He was this autistic Korean kid, and he just listened to the same collective soul song over and over again. His roommate said he just played that song over and over again. And one of the guys he killed, I found out, because back when that happened, there was a website called My Dead Space, and it had links to MySpace profiles of people who had died. And when the Virginia Tech happened, somebody collected all the MySpace profiles of the victims, and just out of truly morbid curiosity, I was like, I'm going to take a look at this. And one of the, I didn't click on every one, but the guy I clicked on, he was into like black metal and death metal. Like on MySpace, you could uh, choose a song to play. You could have an MP3 that played when someone came to your profile, and he had a Sodom song. And so here this guy, like, and he seemed like a nice kid. He seemed like a healthy, nice kid. But he had like a niche interest, you know. He was into old school black and death metal. And that took some investment, especially then. You know, now you can just stream everything, but it took some investment to be into that. And I was thinking, how crazy is it? Like, it, that, honestly, it really had a profound impact on me because I was like, that guy is, once again, it's like the guy with the neurosis shirt. Like when I saw the guy in the neurosis shirt in the Columbine class photo, I was like, oh yeah, that's probably the kind of guy I would have been friends with. Same thing when I saw this guy, the Virginia Tech victim who was like into Sodom and black death metal and all this stuff. I was like, oh yeah, like that's relatable to me. That's the kind of stuff I'm into more or less. But that guy got killed by a psycho who listens to Collective Soul. You know, most people who are into Sodom, for example, are not dangerous people. The few who are, <laughs> the few people who are into Sodom who are truly dangerous are really fucking dangerous, I bet. But there's such a small minority because to be into that, you have to like, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like you have to be kind of artsy or something to listen to this racket. Whereas like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they're not listening to Collective Soul on repeat, but they're listening to like these big beats and just these generic riffs with shout, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing, I don't have a problem with like the sort of industrial rock they were into. I don't listen to it, but it's like they're, they're listening to just Ramstein and I don't even know what else. That was the big one. They were obsessed with Ramstein. KMFDM. Ramstein and KMFDM were the big bands they were into. It's not like I knew tons of kids who were into that stuff, but it does kind of fit. Like the kids at my school who sat in the corner. Once again, though, you put these, you see who these people are. Like I knew the reason I think Columbine has such a, why I'm able to be interested in it my biannual Columbine investigation is because like I can place those kids too. While nobody ever shot up my school, I can immediately place where they would have hung out, who they would have hung out with, what their personalities were like. And with these younger kids who didn't grow up in that era, I think it's harder. Like if you didn't grow up in the Columbine era and know kids like that, like, like, a, like a girl who's 17 years old today and is just reading about Columbine, something that happened years before she was born, 
I think this stuff seems larger than life. And I know, and you know, even when you get away from dark stuff and tragedies, like that's how I viewed the fifties or the sixties. It all seemed larger than life. Like when I first met Miles, we had a conversation about this, about like the 1960s, the late 60s, where we were talking about like, what would it have actually been like to be there? Like, and neither of us have any, neither of us are into that shit. Neither of us are into hippie shit. But we talked about like, what would it have been like to be there at these events that you hear about? And we, were, we both were like, we would have the same attitude we have now. We'd be like, fuck this. Like, if you saw the immediate reality of these things that happened before you were born, if you experienced them as you were happening and saw the full mundaneness of them, there'd be very little to mythologize. It's like when someone who's been on scene for a major event recalls it, it's like to them, it wasn't like a movie. It was just confusing. Like, oh, I heard gunshots over there, and then I saw people chaotically running, and then I ran over here. You imagine it like a movie, but to them, it's just like this mundane moment of confusion or something. But if you were actually there, and if you were actually living in a time and place that you've only read about or seen in documentaries, that you've only seen presented as if it's entertainment, really, even if you've seen documentary footage, it's stylized. The very fact that it's on a screen and it's framed makes you see it a certain way. And so you see the people a certain way. Like you might have been at some major event, some major protest. You might have been at Woodstock and you might have looked around. You would have been like, oh, these are just a bunch of kids. There's a bunch of posers here. Oh my God, there's all these posers. Oh, these people are awkward. Oh, these people feel just like the people that I know. <laughs> these people feel just like the people that I, I've been around. This feels like being at a lot of other events I've been to. It's just earlier and it looks a little different. And so I think when these kids today look back at Columbine, I think it is larger than life because our brains do that to us. I mean, Columbine's larger than life to me and I lived during that era. But the difference is like when I like read Dylan and Eric's writings or I see like the little bits of footage that are out there on them, I'm like, I can imagine just how awkward they were. I can, I can imagine just how goofy and awkward they were. They weren't sleek and cool. They weren't confident. They were just like the kids that I knew who dressed in black and sat in the corner. There was a crew of them. There's always a group of them. And those kids, as, as much as they're sometimes bullied... They're also antagonists themselves. Like some of them are provocative. Some of them are mean. Whether, it, whether they were made that way or not, like some of them are just mean. They already have this me against the world attitude. And so it's very difficult for me to mythologize Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Like, and not mythologize in, in a positive way, but even in a negative way. Because I just see those are those kids that I knew. And them showing up at the school with guns, I can imagine what it would be like if the kids I knew did that. 
I can very vividly imagine. Like, there were kids who wore trench coats, even after Columbine. And the funny thing is about all that is I've known three people who got called to their school office the day after Columbine for being alternative. Like my friend Miles got called down to the office because he wore black. But the difference is he was more like one of those neurosis kids, not saying he was a neurosis fan, but he would have been that same, you know, his friend would have been the guy in the neurosis shirt too. But the faculty couldn't make a distinction between a kid who's into death metal and underground music and wears black band shirts and some angry, you know, school shooter type. Like they don't, they don't know how to, they don't have that uh, detector. And then two friends of mine who are women got called down because they were both kind of gothy. So they were, you know, people were looking, and people made comments like that about the kids in my school. Like, I remember there was a kid on my football team who hung out in the corner and wore black, and he was just into, like, Ozzy Osbourne and uh, Megadeth. But the coaches thought of him as a school shooter type, and, like, behind his back, they'd be like, oh, yeah, he's one of those Manson types. He didn't listen to Marilyn Manson, but, like, that was when people were, you know, this negative association with Marilyn Manson formed... And it was just like, oh, if you're that type of kid, you're into Marilyn Manson. But it's funny, though, how ki- other kids got caught up in that. Because it's like they would they would have probably called the kid in the Sodom shirt down to the office to pick his brain, make sure he's not plotting something. Meanwhile, the autistic Korean kid who listens to Collective Soul on repeat is the one planning the horrible shooting. Parents just don't understand. Teachers just don't understand. They don't understand the difference between the kid in the neurosis shirt and the Ramstein guys who all they care about is killing. Can't expect people to understand that, but still. Uh, But anyway, I got to get to bed, man. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess what got me going on this is just that whole idea of the anti-muse where we all need to rebel against something we all need to have negative points of reference, like things, outcomes we don't want, people who we don't want to emulate. We need people we don't like. You know, the fact that there are people in the world we don't like is what helps us like people. It's what makes us appreciate the people we do like. And so while... I think, you know, having a muse, like somebody who you orbit, you know, when you're enraptured, somebody who you orbit when you're excited about life and possibility, well, like that's a part of things too. We also have this anti-muse and we start orbiting that very easily. We start being motivated by that. But once you start, once that becomes your primary motivation, once this perceived antagonism becomes your primary motivation, you become an antagonist. You take on this me-against-the-world attitude. And so you have to be careful of that. You have to, you know, really, like, think, like, do I have that in my life? Do I have this certain phantom that's always there? And doesn't just give me pushback on my own thoughts, but... Do I, am I starting to see that phantom everywhere? 
Am I starting to, are these negative points of reference starting to rule me? Because we can see what happens when it does rule people. You know, we have plenty of examples of people who are ruled by a negative muse. Plenty of people who are orbiting a negative muse. And their decisions inevitably become spiteful, resentful, wrathful, which is what one of the Columbine guys had on his shirt. One of them had a custom-made shirt when he was killing people that said wrath. Because I think that's what happens when you become too motivated by this perceived antagonist. Especially when you start to extrapolate out and that antagonism becomes everything and everybody. And in some way you think everybody's enabling that. That everybody's somehow a, con a co-conspirator in the plot to make your life suck. Because that's how those guys came across. And I think people waste time when they look at Columbine and say, what caused them to do it? Why do school shootings happen? People are going to ask those questions, and that's okay. Somebody else can spend time on them. Because when I look at these guys, what I always get to is, is what really put them in that orbit? Because I think what they did, while it's extreme, is a byproduct of that way of thinking that a lot of people do. It's just most people don't take it there. Most people don't see that as the right way to handle it. But when I think about those guys and their psychology, I do think about this, which is like, what actually put them in that negative orbit? What caused them to ignore everything else and give up on everything else and, you know, be entirely motivated by this anti-muse? I don't have an answer, you know, there's no answer to that question, but that's what I think about. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children and run free.